And you're listening to something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm absolutely awesome, but you're under the weather. I am. I, uh, I got bronchitis and ain't nobody got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that. There you go. We're going to find a way to make it work. I mean, we did for WrestleMania weekend, New York city. How about that, man? April 6th, Gramercy Theater, as you like to say. Tickets are on sale right now. It's a matinee show. You don't have to pick. By going to NXT, you can still go see TakeOver. But first, come see Bruce Pritchard. BrucePritchard.com has your tickets right now. And Gramercy, at this point, man, is like our home away from home, is it not? Yes, I love my folks over at the Gramercy Theater. They are great. And I'm just happy to be, in, in a way... It's like New York is my second home. As much as I, you know, that that old Texan in me just hates to say that. I give John Layfield a hard time about when he lived in New York City. But I do love New York, and it is kind of our home away from home. We're looking forward to it, and we're also looking forward to uh, March 1st at Mohegan Sun in Connecticut. It's a super show. Something to wrestle with 83 weeks. You get Bruce Pritchard and Eric Bischoff and myself all in the same spot. This is going to be a fun show. And the rumor in innuendo is that you're working on one of our best guests ever. Absolutely working on it. And again, we never guarantee a guest. We try everywhere we go. We try. Sometimes we're successful. Sometimes we're not. But you never know who could pop in in the state of Connecticut. A lot of big names in that area. It's the Northeast. Yeah. Allegedly, uh, this could be uh, a really big guest. But you're going to have a lot of fun just because Bruce and Eric are in the same spot. Tickets there, of course, March 1st, Mohegan Sun in Connecticut. And you can get them at BrucePritchard.com. How about Crown Point, Indiana on March 9th? You not only get us, you get a wrestling show as well. I've never even been to Crown Point, Indiana, but I'm looking forward to that. And then the very next day, we're in Cleveland, Ohio. And I was told we're near a sellout there. So if you're in Cleveland and you're planning on seeing the big pay-per-view from WWE, you need to hurry because this is going to sell out. So if you haven't already, check it out, man. New York City, WrestleMania weekend, Connecticut on March 1st, Crown Point, Indiana on March 9th, Cleveland, Ohio on March 10th, all on sale right now, including tickets for Bruce's solo tour to Australia, March 22nd, March 23rd, March 24th. It's going to be a busy March and tickets for all of these shows are on sale right now at BrucePritchard.com. And I've had lots of questions. Okay, well, Conrad, if, if Bruce is in Australia, where are you going to be? I'm going to be at C2E2 doing another super show, this time with Eric Bischoff and Tony Schiavone. So find some tickets for Chicago or fly down and see Bruce in Australia. Why not? BrucePritchard.com has your hookup. 
So I guess now we should uh, take a minute and talk about last week's show, St. Valentine's day massacre. What a special show. What an important show. What a big show. What was the feedback you got about last week's episode? <laughs> I, I see what you did there. Big show. Cause it was a big show and it was the debut of the big show. Got a lot of great feedback there. I, I think it, you know, it was one of one of those turning point uh, pay-per-views that we discussed. And this is one that we're going to talk about today, which is another big turning point pay-per-view. One of those moments that I think everybody kind of remembers. They go back to the first time that Vince McMahon really had an official match. And that was some pretty big news and uh, a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the show. Got lots of good feedback. And uh, we hope you dug it as well. I guess we should take a minute right now, though, and acknowledge that we had a couple of WWE names pass away. People that you knew, Bruce. Uh, do you want to share some memories about Pedro and Sal? Yeah, you know, uh, we lost Sal Balomo and Pedro Morales this week. And I didn't really know Sal that well. I met Sal a few times. One of the nicest guys that you would ever want to meet. And I think people remember him as the perennial enhancement talent in the WWE. He got a few shots to try and be more than that. Um, and he got a little crazy, if you will, but just a genuinely sweet guy. And Pedro Morales, the first Hispanic WWF champion who beat Ivan Koloff for the title way back when. And Pedro, I had a... a lot of time working with Pedro in my days. And again, another all round great guy from Puerto Rico. One of my favorite Pedro Morales stories is one time Pedro was on a plane and Bobby Heenan, one of Bobby Heenan's favorite ribs was to go up or go to the back, either one, wherever it was, wherever the bathroom was on a plane. And he would take out his nail clipper and there's a little way that you can lock the bathroom from the outside. So when people go back there, they look and they see that it's occupied. And sometimes they'll stand there in their wait, or they'll go back to their seat. So Bobby used to like to get up at the very beginning of the flight, and just walk back and go to the bathroom, come out nonchalantly, go up and lock the door. So you saw the occupied sign on there. This one particular flight, Pedro Morales was on, and Pedro gets up, and Bobby's sitting back there, and Pedro gets up to go to the bathroom, and he's waiting, and he's like, amigo, amigo, and he's knocking on the door. He goes, amigo, are you going to be long? And Pedro finally goes back and sits down. So Bobby's watching this. Bobby gets up and goes uh, back to the bathroom, and he <laughs> and goes right in. Pedro's watching this, and he sees it, and he's like waiting for Bobby to come out. Bobby comes out. Pedro doesn't see Bobby lock the door and Bobby locks the door again. And, uh, Bobby comes back and tops Pete on the shoulder and says, Hey, Pete, I think the, uh, the bathroom's open now. And Pedro goes back and he's goes back. Ah, amigo, come on, man. And the, the door's still locked. And the story goes, and this is the, the phrase that everybody came up with out of it, is Pedro is pacing back and forth. He's pounding on the door. Amigo, amigo, I got to peace. Amigo, I got to peace. I'm going to peace my pants, amigo. Por favor, please, please open the door, amigo. I got to peace. And so every time we would see Pedro from that point on, it was like, amigo, I got to peace. But uh, rest in peace, amigo. And uh, Pedro was one of the good guys, man, and he will be sorely missed. Truly a great 
in the uh, sport of wrestling, man. Well, that uh, that's a fun story that I don't think you've ever shared on the podcast. I, I can't say that I knew much about either one of these guys, but it's always sad to see when you see a member of the wrestling community pass away. And it's sort of cliche, but our, our thoughts and prayers are certainly with their family. And um, I guess, you know, I don't know how to transition to this week's show, but we're going to, we're going to do one. Well, you know what we could do, Conrad, we could talk about that this week's show is, is brought to us by the brand new comedy fighting with my family that is produced by none other than Dwayne, the rock Johnson. And this is the story about Paige, the WWE superstar Paige and her wrestling family. They're absolutely hilarious in real life. And the rock brings that to the big screen. It's funny gonna make you feel good and it's got all the action that you want from a film that's centered around what we talk about all the time wrestling don't miss fighting with my family now playing in select theaters and everywhere february 22nd i cannot wait i gotta tell you it doesn't get i never get tired hearing you say that word which one what's theater yeah 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 well how do you say it theater theater no yeah, there's an A in there. Theater. It's like theater, but theater. All right. I'll take your word for it. All right, man. No Way Out 2004. It went down on February 15th from the Cow Palace in Daly City, California, just about 10 miles from San Francisco. So if you're listening to this on Friday, this was 15 years ago. Bruce, I got to tell you, when I watched this back this week, that did not feel like 15 years. It feels like we just saw this, like, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. Ah, oh boy. You know what? To me, it felt both. It felt like it was yesterday. And then it felt like a hundred years ago. Um, and I just, I, sometimes when I go back and visit things, I, I go back and visit them with a little hesitation. This, I was really excited about, and it did not disappoint from start to finish for me. I was, this was, this was one of mine. I was writing SmackDown at the time, so I'm proud of it. And I look back and, and there's a lot of times when you look back and go, Ooh, shit, we did that. Um, this particular show, I, I kind of look at and go, Hey, that was pretty fucking good. The cow palace has been a famous wrestling building for years. Uh, way before I was watching wrestling, the cow palace was a staple but I remember the cow palace as being more of a WCW building. They had super Bowl seven, eight and 10 there. But surprisingly, this was the first time that a WWE pay-per-view happened at the cow palace. Why is that? Well, it's just the pay-per-view. We did t- television out of there all the time and trying to couple a pay-per-view in it. And at that time with a couple days of TV afterwards, you have to find things in close proximity. The only thing really close to San Francisco is San Jose, and that's just across the bridge. So San Francisco was kind of tough sometimes, but we we would run it for television a lot. We would couple it. Sometimes we do San Francisco, San Jose, and and stay right there. But it was it was a little difficult to do at times, and just so happened that this was the first pay per view that we did there. But it was a Roy Shire. Uh, back in the day, who was the old San Francisco wrestling promoter, 
He had run it for years with Pat Patterson and Rocky Johnson and Peter Maivia headlining the thing for many, many years. If you're curious about the name, the cow palace, Lord knows I was, I found out the idea for the arena was inspired by the popularity of the livestock pavilion at the 1915 Panama Pacific international expo. A local newspaper asked as early as like may of 1935. Why, when people are starving, should money be spent on a palace for cows? And the headline writer turned the phrase around, thus the cow palace. So there you go. So we're coming off the Royal Rumble here, which we recently did a show on available in the archives at somethingwrestle.com. And the Royal Rumble show was a double branded pay-per-view. So you had both raw and SmackDown no way out is indeed a SmackDown only pay-per-view show. And you mentioned that you were a part of the writing staff here. What was the, uh, rationale into thing into sort of breaking up the pay-per-views? Like how was it decided that no way out would be a SmackDown show as opposed to a raw show? It was just the way that it fell. Uh, it was every other show, every other pay-per-view, obviously with the exception of the big five was going to be the other guy's pay-per-view. So you'd have a raw pay-per-view, then you would, would have a SmackDown pay-per-view. In this case, it would have been SmackDown in February, March. We did WrestleMania. Then April would be a raw pay-per-view and then so on and so forth as everything went by. So it was just an alternate. It was alternating back and forth. So Benoit was the winner of that Royal rumble we covered. And at the time he won, he was a part of SmackDown, but the next night on raw, he makes a surprise debut. And has announced his challenging triple H for the world title at the upcoming WrestleMania 20. You were on SmackDown at the time or, or helping with that more, maybe than raw. How did the loss of Benoit affect the SmackDown brand? It, it affected it in that it opened doors. It opened the door for Eddie Guerrero to come in and pretty much claim what I thought was his rightful place. So by losing Benoit, there's another opportunity for someone to step up, fill that void. That was Eddie Guerrero. And we, it was also an opportunity to take a lot of guys. It was an opportunity for Cena to go above and beyond. It was an opportunity uh, for Bradshaw to break out into singles career. And this was a time that we were saying, okay, guys, step up. Uh, you know, Before that, we had had Bob Holly at the Royal Rumble with Brock and, and guys just, you know, Hey, we're going to give new guys, new opportunity and see who can step up and who can hit the ball out of the park. And Eddie did that. I want to ask just based on what you said there, did you guys already know before Benoit won the Royal rumble that you were going with Eddie Guerrero? Well, that was a fight. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was, it was a fight and it took an awful lot of convincing the, I don't know that everybody was in agreement. Certainly the raw team wasn't a hundred percent into Eddie. Look, everybody loved Eddie and everybody thought that Eddie is, is going to be a guy. I don't think that 100% everyone was on board is with Eddie being the guy. I would constantly, you know, Vince and I would have these late night conversations going back and forth that wasn't a part of the team. And, and we would privately discuss, well, you know, who's that guy? Who's that next guy? 
for me, it was Eddie Guerrero. And I go back to before Eddie ever came to work for the WWE in, in trying to describe Eddie as, in my opinion, he was the Mexican Shawn Michaels. He could do it all. A little bit smaller, but man, he just, there was something very special. And plus, I've, I've always felt like uh, a part of the Guerrero family and, and vice versa. I think a lot of the Guerreros felt a part of our family. So selfish, but also th there was just a feeling with Eddie. So going into the Rumble, that was kind of the direction. It's like, okay, well, we're taking Benoit. Benoit's going to go to Raw. He's going to go there and be the guy. We need something different over on SmackDown. We didn't know at this point that Brock was going to leave us. Brock told us he was going to leave us, I think, right after this, that he wanted to go on and play football. But we wanted to shake it up. Uh, I, I've just fought to really shake it up. And Eddie beating Brock, in my opinion, he was made at that point, above and beyond. But there was just such a groundswell everywhere we went. Eddie Guerrero was getting the biggest pops of the night. The audience was 100% behind him. No matter what you gave him, he made it work. Uh, nobody's going to argue that. And we're going to talk a lot about how he made some of that work later in this show. And I'm sure we've got lots more Eddie Guerrero stuff coming your way. Um, I guess before we need to talk about how some of our listeners can make something work and of course, what we're talking about is bringing this country back to greatness. It's easier than ever with ageless male max. Cause they asked the question, when did it become okay for men to be lazier, fatter, softer, ageless male max is a patent pending formula with an ingredient that helps you boost your total testosterone, which is going to promote greater increases in muscle size and twice the reduction in body fat percentage than just exercise alone. Plus an amazing 64% increase in nitric oxide which can be handy in the gym or in the bedroom. So take your manhood to the max by trying your first 30 day bottle for free. Just pay shipping and handling. And to be clear, that's not 10 days. That's not 15 days, a full 30 day supply for free. When you text the word Ram R A M to 79, 79, 79. So don't settle for anything less than a total testosterone boost. Try ageless male max for free. And if your results with ageless male max are too intense, please decrease use. For your free bottle, text RAM, R-A-M, to 797979 and show the world what real men are made of with Ageless Male Max. Of course, message and data rates may apply. So let's talk about how we're getting into No Way Out. And before we get to the pay-per-view, cover some behind the scenes. On the way here, Meltzer would write that OVW owner and trainer Danny Davis was on Bite This and he said that OVW was receiving between 20 and 40 tapes a week from guys who wanted to get started. And they ranged from good to really bad. And he's promoting an upcoming training class from March 21st to 26th. And he's talking about how you run a lot of shows here and that's the way you really get good, uh, looking good, working good, having a good attitude, listening, doing what you're told, keeping your mouth shut. And he really pushes that running these house shows is, you know, critical to the development of what it takes to be a WWE superstar. And he even writes, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that if you don't look good or lazy and have a bad attitude and don't listen and disobey and talk all the time, 
you're fucked no matter how good you think you are. That might sound like a joke, but I guarantee plenty of guys like that have come and gone from OVW. Danny Davis is a guy that we haven't talked about a lot here on the show, but obviously what he contributed to the WWE speaks volumes. Tell everybody a little bit about Danny Davis, what OVW was and what you, what you make of his advice here. Ohio Valley wrestling motherfucker. Danny Davis was a big star in the, in the Southeast, particularly in Tennessee, Alabama. And he, he, he pretty much concentrated in that area. He was from Indiana, uh, lived in Louisville and in that Indiana, Ohio Valley, uh, area for many years. He was part of the nightmares with Ken Wayne. They were a top tag team in that area for a, for a long time. Danny had gone on and Danny opened up a wrestling school in Louisville, Kentucky with that wrestling school. He would run shows when we were starting to look for a place outside of Stanford to train guys, Jim Cornette and Danny Davis partnered and, and Cornette is the one who came to us with the proposal saying, let's send guys to Louisville to learn under the tutelage of Danny Davis. And Jimmy would be there to help them with promos they would run live events. And that was, here was the great thing about OVW. Small territory, Louisville, Kentucky. They had local television. They had their own building that they could teach guys, train everyone. In addition to, they ran live events practically every single night. Sometimes they may only perform in front of a couple of hundred people, but it was an opportunity for guys not only to learn in the training, in the gym and in the ring, but to learn and make your mistakes in front of a smaller audience. So guys were working in front of a live audience every night. Plus they had the ability to do television every single week. So they were doing promos. They were having television matches, which meant they had to learn how to take cues. They had to learn how to get their match in and finish within a certain amount of time. They had to learn, okay, you've got two minutes for this promo, nail it. If you did 30 seconds, you fucked up. If you did three minutes, you fucked up. Give me two minutes. Um, it was just a great training ground. And Danny, in my opinion, is one of the best trainers ever in the business. And he provided an opportunity by partnering with the WWF, being their official training center, to attract a lot of independents and people who wanted to learn how to wrestle. You know, nowadays you've got a lot of different places. You got Booker T's reality of wrestling in Knoxville, Tennessee. You got Tom Pritchard and Glenn Jacobs who have their brand new JPWA. And those are the places that have that affiliation where they know the big boys are watching. The big boys have eyes on this place. So it helped them get students and it was a tremendous place to send guys because you're in the middle of the country. Not a lot of people are going to see them and they could go down there and learn, hone their craft. When they debuted on our show, they were brand new. And that, that was the whole idea behind OVW. I do want to talk about some rumor and innuendo from OVW because over the years, WWE's training has been criticized. Of course, a few years ago, there was some controversy at NXT and uh, you know, you weren't there, so there's no sense in spending much time on it, but let's go back in time here. Meltzer reported 
More on the guys who were sent down to train in OVW. They're all the guys who weren't being used on the road and were being paid to sit at home and do nothing. Vince finally decided to send them to OVW, saying if they didn't learn anything or weren't useful, they were done. All are on the bubble. According to one source, the worst of all is Tommy Dreamer, who was up to 270 pounds and was forced to work with his shirt off as a message. He was also set to train with the girls class with at least one occasion. There's a new rule regarding the training classes as well. In the past, the deal was if you weren't there by 10 AM, they locked the door and you just didn't work out for the day. Now, if you're late, you're fined a hundred dollars and the second offense is $500. And on the third offense, you're done. So they're really, uh, cracking the whip on tardiness. And I guess can't really say much about that. And I don't guess I hate the idea of Vince saying, Hey, if you're not, if you're just sitting at home and not doing anything, go down there and train. Maybe I get that. What do you make of this? Tommy dreamer was forced to work with his shirt off as a message and then sent to train with the girls. No, I don't know. I think about him being sent to train with the girls or anything like that. The idea behind sending guys down there was simply what just explained. There were talent that were on the roster, not currently being used because maybe creative didn't have anything for them. And they would say, Oh, well, I've got this great gimmick. Terrific. Go to OVW. We're going to send guys that we're paying that are healthy, ready to go keep the ring rust off. So that when they do get called up, they're ready to go and don't say, Oh, Hey, well, I've been sitting at home for three months and I got to get the ring rust off. No, go down there, train, get better shape, get better at your craft because a lot of them were younger talent as well. So gave them an opportunity to work. We were paying them anyway. It gave OVW the added addition of some star power of sorts from WWE guys um, you know, Tommy Dreamer wasn't the only one. There, there, Bradshaw <laughs> was there. Mark Henry was there. Um, Ron Simmons was there when guys were coming back from injuries and things of that nature. But it was to keep guys working, keep them busy. If you're going to pay them, then let's get some use out of them. If that use is to utilize them in a training area to help them, then great. What was happening well, some guys would go down there and think, man, I'm, I'm, I've been working for 10 years. I don't have to go to class. Why should I have to go to class? Because you've been asked to, you're being paid to go to class. We're asking you to go to class, stay in shape and work. Maybe you can teach some of the younger kids something. Well, a lot of them felt they didn't need to do that. So they, A, wouldn't show up or would show up late. So they had to institute something, say, all right, you're down there to work. If you don't come to work, first time, fine. Second time, fine. Third time, goodbye, because you're not serious. So it was, in my estimation, I 100% behind it. I think it was the right thing to do because at least you're getting something out of them. The, the other side of it was it was an opportunity for them to try out maybe a new gimmick, a new idea that we didn't see. So go down there, man. You got an idea? Work with those guys. Come up with something new that we might be able to use on the main roster. So that, it was many, many fold and serving a lot of masters. No comment about Tommy Dreamer. I, I, I don't know. I don't know about him working in a uh, women's. I know Tommy was not being used, and he was one of those guys that went down there. 
Well, here's my question though. Like Tommy always worked in a shirt almost his entire career. There was a couple of times in the very beginning of ECW didn't, but for almost the entire time he did, did you hear that you guys were trying to make him work with a shirt off quote unquote to send a message? Cause that feels no, really that, weird. That, that sounds like, that sounds like something that, you know, somebody made up and maybe Tommy worked without his shirt on. I don't know. It's not like send a message to Tommy dreamer, make him work without his shirt on. I don't know that anybody said that or that actually happened. I have no idea. I know Tommy was one of the guys that went down there as did a lot of guys, but Tommy worked his the entire, probably the first five years of his career without his shirt on. So, I mean, Tommy used to be a heartthrob for God's sakes. He was Tommy dreamer. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, you, you go back to the early Tommy dreamer. That was, he never worked with a shirt on. Let's talk about Goldberg here because Goldberg's a big part of what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, Meltzer would write production for Goldberg's upcoming Santa sleigh movie was pushed back. So he hasn't even started to work on it yet. Originally it was set to be filmed during the period that he was deactivated by Bischoff for 30 days, but production will now take place throughout February. So we'll see how that affects his television schedule. Speaking of Goldberg, WWE did offer him a new deal post WrestleMania, but it was similar to the deal they offered Kevin Nash, meaning they offered it, figuring there was no way he'd accept it. Part of the deal is they want exclusive international rights for him. And he makes so much money to do so little work in Japan that he'd likely have no interest in accepting that offers can always be changed though. So we've done a Goldberg show in the past, but at this point, do you remember you guys making an offer saying you're going to throw him an offer just because it's expected, but we don't really want him to sign it. So let's love all the shit out of him. No, the idea was, is if Goldberg was going to stay, we would do something with him. And the offer was something to try and appease Bill so that maybe, all right, Bill, you don't want to work a whole lot. Then we'll do less money for less dates. However, you still have, you have to have worldwide (laughs) rights on a guy. And that's silly to build a guy up just to let him go out and work for somebody else. So the idea was, okay, maybe there's another deal that would entice Bill to stay. We had to know that ahead of time. I think for the most part, most people thought that Bill was done after WrestleMania anyway, but they still wanted to see if there was something there, if perhaps they could entice him to stay, maybe less dates. Hey, let's come on in and do, you know, kind of like the Brock Lesnar deal right now. But, uh, and I think that it was taken in a different way. What you want me to come in for less money? Yeah. And less dates too. But it, I don't think anybody thought he was going to take it from the way that he was acting. He, he wanted to do he wanted to do his Hollywood stuff, and I guess he wanted to go to Japan and, and do those other things. But Bill, at this point in his tenure with us, no one was really confident that Bill was going to stay. I think that Vince still wanted that last shot at it. Maybe I can get him to stay, but obviously he didn't. Let's run through some other potential hires here. Meltzer writes WWE signed Bobby Billard and Latasha Marzola, two blonde fitness slash playboy models. All you need to know is they're being called the Hooters sisters. The story is they both sent nude videos to someone in the company. And the next thing you know, they're on the payroll. Talk about a promo package. Marzola for sure. knows absolutely nothing about wrestling because she's already appeared on OVW TV and that's completely lost. 
and I suspect Billard is in the same boat. They didn't get off to a great start as they called and rescheduled on the very first day they were supposed to show up for practice. Okay, so I know you're going to dump on this, but let's just have fun with it for a minute. Let's pretend they really did send nude videos to someone in the company. Because I know you're going to deny that and say it's silly and rumor and innuendo, but let's pretend for the purposes of the show, trying to entertain people here. I've had people send me nude videos. Well, I'm sure you have. Thanks to our Bluetooth commercial last week. I asked for before and after photos. What the hell? All right. So let's talk about the nudes you received. Go ahead, Bruce. Tell us about your nudes. <laughs> no, a lot of times people would do, especially of the female, they would send you, if they had done stuff with Playboy, they would send you their nude pictures because that's what they had. That was their portfolio. And they thought, well, this is what I've done. And frankly, I appreciate that so that you don't find out later on that they did nudes and did all this other shit. All right. Hypothetically, I'm glad we're, we're going down this path. This is going to be fun. Hypothetically, let's pretend our good old friend, good old Jr. was the one to receive this package for Bobby and Latasha. What do you reckon that might sound like when he brought it over to Vince? Well, Vince, or Sassafras, I just want to show there, there's some potential. There's some potential talent here. Uh, you, you, you'll see what I'm talking about here. Now, now if you'll take a look here at the, at the Tatas, check out the Tatas because they're 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 pretty. Uh, in my opinion, they're 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 fabulous. Oh, I really like them a lot. I think that the the bootay is what I go for. I'm gonna hire them. Um, so that could have happened. You never really know. You know, Johnny but, Ace, Johnny Ace hired the wrong. One-legged man once. Oh, did, did he ever hi- hire the wrong Hooter sister, you think? I don't think you can hire a wrong Hooter sister. But the the mandate had come down, I want, you know, I want more beautiful women. I want models. I want actresses. I want singers. Um, so you get them from wherever you can get them from. And that's when you're, when you're act, out looking for models, singers, and... What have you? That's what you're going to get. Let's get to the January 29th SmackDown. No way out. Of course, is a SmackDown show. So we're just going to cover the SmackDowns here. Show opens up with Paul Heyman in the ring and his speech is interrupted by Vince. And Vince says that tonight was supposed to be the celebration of the winner from the Royal rumble, but no, Chris Benoit jumped to raw and he yells at Paul and blames him for making this happen because he made Benoit's life a living hell week after week. And he demanded, he apologized to all the fans and Paul got mad and said, screw Chris Benoit. And he said, this is like when Hall and Nash left and Vince just said, screw them and gave someone else the opportunity. And he also mentioned Hogan and Brett Vince, of course, by the way, admits he did screw Brett. And then Heyman said tonight, it's going to be the night of opportunity because he's going to present a Royal rumble where the winning guy gets a title shot at the next pay-per-view, which brings about a lot of Goldberg chance. Heyman says, Matt Morgan is injured and Benoit is gone. So they're going to replace, they're going to be replaced by Bob Holly and Eddie Guerrero. And later in the show, we see that battle Royal again, the winner gets a title shot against Brock Lesnar. Here's the order of entry. Um, Kurt angle. Rhino, Charlie Haas, Shelton Benjamin, Bradshaw, uh, Tajiri, Billy Gunn, Big Show, Cena, Nunzio, Eddie Guerrero, A Train, Rikishi, and Bob Holly. 
So out of that group, you've got some guys who are going to go on to be really big stars. The winner, of course, is Eddie. The end of the match happens when Eddie and Angle team up to eliminate Rikishi. Just leaves the two of them. Then we have an awesome 10-minute battle between the two. And uh, big pop when Eddie gets the win. Pretty fun show here. I love the uh, the finish of this. Uh, what would you think of the idea to hold a second Royal Rumble of sorts on SmackDown to make up for the fact that Benoit jumped? I liked it. And what did you think about the match itself? I, I, I loved it. I especially loved the finish because Kurt Angle and Eddie Guerrero had natural chemistry. Both amateur wrestlers with that background, and they clicked. I also think there was some professional rivalry, if you will, between the two. They, they were friendly and they were friends, but at the same time, they both wanted to be the top guy. So there was a real rivalry between Eddie and Kurt and their matches were, God, they were some of the best matches ever the way that, that we got to it. And I just love the finish with Kurt angle on the outside and Kurt's trying to suplex Eddie out to the floor with Eddie holding on and taking Kurt. You think that Eddie's going to suplex Kurt back into the ring but it was as simple as just Eddie taking a few extra steps to make sure that Kurt cleared the apron and there was no way for Kurt to land on the apron. It's, it was a time that we had wrestlers on SmackDown (laughs) and I know it sounds hokey, but we had some of the best in ring talent during this time at SmackDown with Kurt Angle and Eddie and Haas and Benjamin and Chavo that could go. And it was, it was just a lot of fun to watch these guys go because they always tried to outdo each other for real. And they felt like a real competition. Well, I mentioned Zach Gowan a minute ago because in my research, I realized this is around the time when his run with the company comes to an end. Meltzer would write, Zach Gowan was released from his WWE contract last week, ending what the company itself described as a very controversial relationship. Now, Zach Gowan, if maybe you're not familiar, was the one-legged wrestler uh, who appeared in a lot of uh, high-profile stuff, being paired with Hogan, even having a match with Vince McMahon. Uh, Brock Lesnar destroyed him on a show once. And he's only 20 here when he gets released. And a lot of the people say that it's probably his age that really made him not be long for this world. Meltzer would even say that some reports from some of the other guys were that he was probably too immature to make it in the business just yet. And Jim Ross on the WWE website even notes that he's only 20. So there's a good possibility. He might show up in WWE rings again sometime in the future. What do you remember about Zach Gowan and why it didn't work out? I know we joked about, you know, your boy signing the wrong one-legged wrestler, Steve Chamberlain from Florida, but the actual Zach Gowan who we saw on TV and had some pretty high profile angles. Why didn't it last longer from your perspective? I think it was immaturity. You know, Zach was 19 years old and he got a contract with the WWF. He came in and immediately was put into a program with Roddy Piper, with Hulk Hogan, with Vince McMahon. That's a hard thing for anybody to just 
jump into the business and all of a sudden you're, you're put in a top angle and you're out there and everybody recognizes you and everybody's coming up to you. It's fame can be difficult to handle at any age. If you've never experienced it before and you're a 19 year old kid, you're coming into this world with men twice your age that are not even receiving their first break yet. Here's this 19 year old kid getting a big break, working on top with all these guys. There was a lot of jealousy from the talent that looked at Zach as, well, the only reason he's here is because he's got one leg and he's a gimmick and he's going to be gone to Zach, not understanding that and maybe acting like he deserved that spot. It, it was, it was tough on, on all accounts. And I don't know that on our end, we really prepared him for what he was to expect. We tried, you know, and I, and I especially tried to help him along the way. Zach's a good kid. He's a really good person. But I think that in that world, he reacted and he acted in a way that he thought was how he should act. Right. And it wasn't, and it wasn't always the best way to act when you're around guys that have been in the business for a long time. And the fact that he was getting all these breaks and accolades, if you will, probably lent to resentment from the other talents side that he didn't know how to handle. So it was, yeah, he had, you know, Zach definitely had a, had a shitload of heat that warranted or not. Some of it was warranted. Some of it was just, man, that was the position and that was the hand he was dealt. Maybe he didn't know how to play it exactly, but he, he tried and um, it just didn't work out. It really just didn't work out. I, I think that he, you know, he's 20 years old and he's out in the bars and he's drinking and things of that nature that I don't know that he had ever done before and probably didn't handle that all that well. So it was a accumulation of a lot of things. And unfortunately, Zach and the WWF at that time wasn't a fit. Let's talk a little bit about Hulk Hogan, because he's in the Observer here where Meltzer says he was telling friends that his knee injury was probably going to prevent him from appearing at WrestleMania 20. And he's not sure if he'll even be able to work a match before the summer. And Hogan says on ESPN radio, that he hasn't even talked to Vince McMahon in months and he doesn't give the impression here that a deal is imminent. Of course, we know Hulk Hogan wound up not appearing at WrestleMania 20, but if he would have, it would have been a pretty cool moment since WrestleMania originally was built around him and it would have been a nice moment 20 years later. But as we know, he missed 10 as well. Was it ever even discussed doing something with Hogan for WrestleMania 20? Oh, hell yeah. Uh, Vince really wanted, we all did. It just wasn't Vince. We, we all wanted Hulk for WrestleMania 20. It was in Madison Square Garden. It's where it all started, man. It was, you know, fuck. Um, but I think from Hulk's perspective, if he wasn't going to be the main event and everything built around him, good knee, bad knee, I don't think that Hulk would have been interested if he wasn't the main focus of that promotion. So we tried, Vince tried, I tried. Um, but that's the feeling that I, that I kind of walked away from that 
well, what are you going to do with me? Who, who am I working with? God damn, man. You know, if you're, if you're not ready to go, you don't have to work with anybody. I just want you there. I, we, we can, we can do something. We can figure out something to do. Um, you know, maybe it's the referee. Maybe it's a, some kind of guest appearance. We just want you there because it's WrestleMania 20. It's New York city. It's Madison square garden. Um, it just didn't happen. And it just, sometimes Vince and Hulk have this relationship that they stop talking and they, they just cease to communicate and they'll communicate around each other. So for example, Vince will call me. Why don't you call Terry? Uh, Terry, will, Terry will call me or Terry will call someone else. I was like, Hey, we talked to Vince versus one or the other, or both of them picking up the phone and calling each other. So it, it, it's always been a, that love hate relationship and could be confusing at times, but we tried on our end. And I think that Hulk, you know, he had the injury, he had an out. So if he, Nah, I'm going to skip this one, but it would have been nice to have him there for the anniversary aspect of it. And by God, you know, again, Madison Square Garden, it's a 20 year anniversary. He started the fucking thing. It would have been nice to have him there. Without question. Another guy who's being discussed as appearing at WrestleMania 20 during this time is the rock who hinted around in late November that. He thought he might be on TV in January, but of course the WWF never banked on that. He is going to start making some appearances in March, but I do want to mention that there is a discussion, uh, in the torch that I wanted to share with you quote. I think rock is all about Hollywood right now. Said one source quote. I think he feels he owes Vince McMahon this WrestleMania appearance, but that's about it. Let's not forget that Vince is basically the rocks Hollywood agent. Vince gets a percentage of what rock makes in Hollywood. And then he brings in extra revenue by having the rock wrestle on pay-per-views end quote. So of course the rock is locked in for WrestleMania, uh, but his appearances are going to be uh, limited and he's going to be tagging with Mick Foley here to take on uh, the three man team of evolution, Orton, Batista and flair. What do you make of, I mean, we've never really talked about this, but that was definitely out there that in exchange for using the name, the rock, he had to pay tribute as some would say to Vince McMahon and kick him in. And Vince got some credits and things like that. What do you remember about the details of that rock Hollywood Vince McMahon relationship? I don't know a whole lot about those details. I remember during the time, you know, rock wanted to make WrestleMania rock also wanted to pursue his career in Hollywood. Also the people around rock at the time were adamant against rock doing anything with us because it's like the more you go back there, the less Hollywood is going to want to touch you. They don't want the wrestling guy. They want Dwayne. So he had people in his ear on both sides. And I, I truly believe that rock really does still to this day, you know, love WWE, love wrestling, um, you know, third generation, but he's doing other shit. And this was his first taste of having a lot of other shit to do on the outside. And it was tasting pretty good to him. 
So I think he was battling it internally and the folks around him were more hesitant than he was. I think he was trying to make it work and they were trying to put things in front of him that to say, no, come over here. We've got this for you. Hey, you can't do this. If you do that, that's in my opinion, what was going on because every time that rock was there, I mean, he was, man, he was in, he, you know, he, he was all in, he wanted, he wanted to do everything that he could to make it the best. But at the same time, he's looking at the future. He was looking 10 years, 20 years down the road as to what am I going to be doing then? And Hollywood was a career and something that he really wanted to pursue. So it wasn't, I I don't know the, the whole thing as far as what WWE got. I know that they were executive producer on a lot of that stuff, but a lot of that stuff was during a time that they were bringing projects to him and that they were still associated or the project was brought to rock through them. So that, that was my understanding of it, but I don't know the particulars. Around the same time, late January, we would lose Jack Tunney, the former figurehead WWF president and wrestling promoter himself. He died on January 24th in Ontario. He was only 68 years old and died of a sudden heart attack, which Meltzer said prior to that, he had no real signs of illness beforehand. He was living in Fort Lauderdale, but visiting family in Canada when he passed away. And he was the nephew of longtime Ontario promoter, Frank Tunney. And of course, most people remember Jack Tunney for making occasional rulings on television through the WWF in the eighties and nineties. And Meltzer would say his on-air role was given to him because he quote, looked presidential and as a gesture of thanks for Tunney leaving the NWA and siding with McMahon during those early expansion years. I do want to mention that, um, Meltzer wrote something here that I didn't really know. Quote, Tony was bitter after McMahon let him go and replaced him with current Canadian promoter, Carl DeMarco in 1995. WB acknowledged Tony's death on WB.com for more than one week after he died and did not pay tribute to him on television, which is a strong indication that McMahon didn't feel Tony remained quote, part of the family after his departure as an official employee, nearly 10 years ago. Uh, what was the relationship like? with Jack Tunney in those last 10 years, was Tunney bitter that McMahon let him go in favor of Carl DeMarco in 95? Yeah. Yeah. Jack was bitter because Jack felt that Toronto was his Vince honored that for many years. And even after he brought in Carl DeMarco as quote, the president of Canada, Carl was more than Montreal. Um, Jack, I'm not Montreal, I beg your pardon, Toronto. Uh, Carl was going to handle the entire country of Canada, uh, East coast to West coast. So Carl offered a lot more. Jack was given the opportunity to work with Carl and to be a part of that. Jack declined. Vince still took care of Jack for a few years after that. And then, you know, Jack made it known that he didn't like Carl. He didn't want to be a part of the WWF. He didn't want to be associated in any way, shape or form. And from my vantage point, from our vantage point, it was a lot more Jack's doing. Yes. Vince did bring Carl in, but he did keep Jack a part of it. And Jack chose not to be a part of it. 
And Jack did feel that, well, you brought Carl in above me. Go ahead and give Carl everything else. Let me keep Toronto. And says, I can't do that. I've got to do, you know, Carl's going to oversee it all. You can still be a part of Toronto, but not in the same way that you were. So, yeah, there were there were definitely better feelings on on Jack's part. And he let it be known he didn't want to have anything to do with the company uh, it, when Carl was brought in. And that's unfortunately the way it remained because Jack was Jack was a class guy. Uh, I always got along with him. He was a lot of fun to be around, an old-time promoter. And it was uh, it was sad. It was It was really sad when Jack was no longer with us. Let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, I don't know when we're going to talk about this again, and I know you get frustrated whenever I bring it up, but the hint of ECW first happened here. Vince McMahon teased in a business week article that he might launch a third brand alongside raw and SmackDown. Remember now this is early Oh four, the recent style change in WWE. This is from the torch may be motivated in part as a way to tone down the main product. So a third brand marketed to quote 20 something males with a more edgy approach. Vince McMahon's language to describe this is quote, a little more wild West, which would have more impact and then truly make the brand seem different. And there's speculation that the confidential show, which was airing at the time may be replaced by the third brand, which might be called ECW given that McMahon owns the rights to that name. This is fascinating to me because he hints in business week here in early Oh four January. In fact, a year and a half before he runs one night stand the first time two and a half years before he actually brings the company out of mothballs. Did you have an indication in early Oh four that, oh shit, we might be doing ECW. No, he didn't want to do ECW and that, and he was very specific about that. And he would always, every time that someone would bring up, well, ECW, you're in a lot of ways, you're describing ECW. No, God damn it. Old dead brand. He, he didn't, he, he w- refused to want to do ECW, especially in those early years. Uh, that was one of the things when he purchased WCW people, Paul was like, well, buy ECW and, and continue ECW versus WCW. So while he was talking about all these different shows and doing something edgier and doing something different in no way at that time. And it took a lot of convincing when he finally did do it to do the ECW, but he was even more adamant in, in this time frame that it was not going to be ECW. Hmm. But it was, uh, no, it wasn't. Okay. Not at that time. Later no. on, it became, yes, it did. And it was uh, off of the success of the pay-per-view one night stand. It was like, okay, there might still be something there. Well, but when you're talking here in this time period, it was not. I'm not arguing that, but this is, I'm talking to the same guy who would mess would write something and then it didn't happen. And he would write plans change. You would mock it, but literally plans change. No, cause Meltzer's wrong when he would just make shit up. Okay. That was never in the cards. Cool story. Hey, so Wade Keller wrote. Oh, fuck you, cool story shit. That's uh, that's what he does. He makes shit up. 
See, here's the difference. Here's the difference. Meltzer has never spent yeah. one single second mm. in any meeting or around me working in the wrestling business ever. So for Meltzer to say that any of my stories made up anything, he has zero to go on because he's never experienced it. He's never done it. He has never been in one single meeting ever with me. He's never ridden in a car with us and experienced the conversations that we have had. So fuck him and his goddamn comments. He literally didn't even say anything here. I don't give a shit in general. Fuck him. All right. Why are you so honoring? I'm not honoring. All right. Wade Keller would write WWE will be running its first ever event in Mexico on April 3rd at the new 20,000 seat world-class Arena Monterey with Eddie Guerrero and Rey Mysterio's top SmackDown wrestlers. The show will likely be a SmackDown brand show. WWE tends to enter new markets or up the international show schedule where business is sagging in the regular stops. NBA president David Stern has talked about for years, expanding his league or moving a team to Mexico, but it's never happened. WWE would be considered a major entertainment entity in Mexico, which has a rich pro wrestling history but only with Mexican-based promotions, primarily using Mexican talent. I was pretty fascinated by this to see that first time there is 04. Why didn't you guys run Mexico sooner? There wasn't a lot of money. And when you look at the Mexican promotions that were there, their ticket prices were a lot lower than what we would need to charge to make it profitable. For example, EMLL. They own the arenas that they run, so they're not paying rent, and they pay their talent a lot less. For us to go in, it just was a lot more expensive than it was for the Mexican promotions to run in the country. So it it took a lot of time, and there was a fear that the audience would be adverse to paying those prices. And... So it just took a while. It took a, took a lot of convincing to say, well, let's try it and see if they'll come, see if they'll actually pay and see if they'll come out and support the brand without their local talent. Wade Keller would also report around this time that Stacy, Lita, and Trish all turned down Playboy offers, but that Tori and Sable accepted. Um, chat me up here. What do you remember being the discussion internally about either of those three? Of course, it never happened for any of those. And Foolishly, Eric Bischoff shared on 83 weeks that when Stacy asked his opinion of the playboy shoot, his immediate reaction was, what would your dad think? I want to state clearly for the record again, fuck you for that, Eric Bischoff, but chat me up here. That motherfucker. I know. What's he thinking? Why would he do that to us? I'm going to punch him next time I see him. Stacy. Now, now I'm, I'm pissed. I mean, look what could have had. Not now. Thanks a lot, Eric. Fucking ruin everything. It's not bad enough. He killed WCW. He killed Stacy Keebler and Playboy too. I'm more hot about that. In fact, all right. Uh, Stacy, Lita, Trish. Do you remember it being discussed? Was it ever, uh, the talk of the locker room? It was, it was discussed with Playboy and it was discussed with them. And yes, they all did turn it down. Um, it was, it was interesting because Trish had done uh, some nudes before and done some different things that 
She didn't want to do Playboy. They, I, I think that at the time, <laughs> I think that some people just thought, and it was Playboy. It was, it was Playboy saying, we went to them, who do you want? And they had had Sable before, and they had had uh, Joni before, and I don't know if Tori had already done hers single one yet or not. I think she had. So they wanted somebody new. They wanted different. And yeah, they, they didn't want to have anything to do with it. And fuck Eric Bischoff for putting that thought in Stacy, your dad would have loved it. He would have been so proud of you. I agree. Fucking Eric Bischoff. I'm just mad at him. Wade Keller would also report that Steve Austin is one of the veteran voices speaking out in favor of this quote unquote new style being pushed by McMahon and his agents. Keller would write as one of the all time top draws. He believes that big moves and big bumps aren't necessary to draw. Although some believe that only applies to people with special charisma like Austin, but others without that gift need to do more to get noticed, which is one of the main frustrations with some of the mid card wrestlers. Who are worried that the new style levels the playing field and takes an advantage away from the better mid-card athletes in the company. It's a fair criticism. What do you re- remember about this? Maybe pushback about slow down, take less risk, take less bumps. First of all, it lengthens your career and it tells a better story when you're doing moves and you're not selling them and you're just going flip flop and fly and all that bullshit. Nothing means anything you don't give the audience time to absorb and digest. So look, I was totally in favor of it. And a lot of the veterans were as well, because they felt that you sell and it makes it mean more. You don't have to do as much. It extends your career and it's good for everybody. And I think some people were just looking for the pop and they're just like, well, God, look at the reaction I got. Well, sure. You got a reaction doing that shit. But then you were right up and they couldn't, couldn't digest what you just did. And it took away from the move that was spectacular that now you or your opponent is up and on to the next thing. And it's like, it never happened. So I think for the younger talent, it it took convincing the older talent. I think they got it. Wade Keller would write that Vince McMahon continues to hold these meetings. If you listen to our rumble episode, you remember that Vince would hold meetings before raw and SmackDown. Well, he's still doing it after the rumble. And one of the things he's harping on in a much calmer fashion is not wanting wrestlers to leak information from the meetings. And he's pushing that he wants a new style. Someone who attended the meeting wrote, you can either compliment them for being consistent or criticize them for being redundant saying basically it's the same message every week. They want to push this new style with more realistic mat work, longer selling and following referee orders more closely. And they're even going so far here after the rumble to start showing clips from last week's show and point out what they like and what they don't like. One wrestler would tell Wade, it seems everyone is buying into that message right now. It's working. We can do it. We didn't do it before because we didn't think that's what was expected of us. It's not a new style. It's just a different style, but the crowd seems to be okay with it. And he also remarks that it's the rebellion against the crash TV era of the late nineties, which is now looked at as really passe chat me up. Do you remember Vince breaking out video and showing guys, Hey, more of this, Uh, less of that. 
yeah, we had monitors there and we would play certain things that worked and certain things that didn't as examples for everyone. And it's funny, <laughs> they're referring to it as a new style. It's really an old style. It's, it's the way that talent had worked for many years before that. It was how everybody worked before. It was less is more and sell what you do. Make what you do mean more by doing less. And if you do concentrate on the things that you do really well, make them exceptional. And again, it'll, it'll lengthen your career and it will be easier to understand for the audience. It is sort of funny though, that he's sort of ranting against the locker room, to stop leaking stuff, but his own magazine, I can't believe this is real. But the, the, his own SmackDown magazine has the undertaker on the cover with the headline, the dead man returns three fourteen Oh four, where it all begins again. And this was before he's returned to raw after being buried alive at survivor series, boy, this is a, a prime case of the left hand, not telling the right hand what's going on. Is it not? No, we, we did that on purpose and we did it so that people that got the magazine, they know, and it was all done. We started doing teases. No, we did. We even did teases starting in February at the pay-per-view that, you know, the, if you got it, you got it and undertaker. And, and it was obviously a lot more overt in the magazine, but you have to understand that's to such a small audience as well, but you have to have a lot of lead time in that. And you wouldn't have a chance after that issue comes out. You know what I mean? To talk about him coming back because then it would have been upon you. So no, that was calculated and we definitely knew what they were doing there because it was lesser of two evils. We know he's coming back. We're going to start television teases. Here's when the magazine comes out. You know, how do we do it? It's like, okay, eat it. Go put the magazine out and people that get the magazine, they'll know ahead of the television audience. And that'll tell people, by God, go get the magazine if, if it came to that, but it, it's not that big of an issue. Let's talk about the uh, February 5th SmackDown where Kishi and Scotty Tuhani beat the Bashams here to win the tag titles. It's a real sentence. And then Cole interviewed Eddie about the match with Lesnar. And before he could start talking, Brock came out and Cole ran for his life. Crowds chanting for Eddie here and Brock rattles off a list of stars and legends he'd beat. The point of which was to prove he's not afraid of anybody. That includes Goldberg. And he said, if Goldberg wanted to come to the pay-per-view and watch him kill Eddie, he could knock himself out. And Eddie says that's an impressive resume. And all that he has going for himself is that he'd overcome every personal obstacle ever put in front of him. And he's always been told he's too small, has too many issues, et cetera, to ever make it. And he says, Brock is the next obstacle. And Brock said he made every, maybe everyone was right. Eddie, you're a no one. And Eddie snapped, stomps a mud hole in him. Then Brock bails up the ramp and, uh, Eddie puts on the WB title and dances in the ring and the crowd goes wild. Pretty fun little segment here. And they didn't have a lot of time to build to this pay-per-view. So, you know, I mean, really at this point, some of these shows are only like three weeks apart. You guys had to get to business pretty fast. What'd you think of this segment? I thought it was Again, it was another demonstration of how over Eddie Guerrero was at the time. They wanted him so bad. They wanted him to succeed. And we were telling the story about his addictions and overcoming all of this shit. 
and you hit the nail on the head when you would come off of a dual branded pay-per-view. Sometimes we had the story with Brock and Bob Holly at the Royal Rumble. Now we got a few weeks before we have to go to No Way Out. We didn't have a lot of time to get that story because we had to finish up one before we could start the other. And it and, would, and, and even then you, you've got to start building for WrestleMania. So no shit. You've yeah. got, you've got like six or seven weeks to build two pay-per-views. So you've got to get to off of Holly onto Eddie, but really <laughs> Eddie is getting us on the way to Goldberg. So Eddie's important and we got to get that over, but we're not nearly as concerned with that as we are the Goldberg thing, which is the big payoff. It's just, it's too much. And then in the middle of it, you got Brock giving his notice and you know, Goldberg's leaving and you're like, well, fuck. Then you're, you're kicking yourself going, well, we should have spent more time on Eddie and angle, but hindsight's 2020. Lesnar starts to get a little heat in the locker room here because some people believe he's let success get to his head. That's reported by Wade Keller. And the Lesnar defenders would say he's simply young and hasn't figured out how to deal with the fame yet. And he's made it known that he's not happy about his travel schedule. And after discussing the situation with the office, both decide that it would actually save the company money. If Brock purchased a $400,000 plane to use for his WWE travel, he spends the money himself to make his life a little easier. And the company, meanwhile, will pick up the travel expense costs, including Lesnar's personal pilot, who happens to be a friend of his from college. And Lesnar tells friends that the new travel arrangement will actually save the company 50 to $75,000 a year compared to the first class airfare he was getting. Allegedly Brock is frustrated with the travel, but still loves performing. So some expect him to stick around, but he is pretty vocal about his frustration that he's going to have to lose the belt to Eddie Guerrero because he assumes if he had the world title against Bill Goldberg at the pay-per-view he would have been slotted higher on the card and therefore maybe received a bigger payday, but he is very excited about the match with Goldberg. Now, as you recall from watching it, that would change. What do you remember about Brock's heat at the time? And what can you tell us about this plane? Because much has been written about the plane. Brock came and Brock hated travel. Brock hated going through airports. Brock hated dealing with people. Hated the delays. He lived in Minnesota and a lot of times he had to make connections and what have you. Pretty easy deal. Brock wanted to have his private plane. He paid for it. The company would have flown him in. The company paid what they would have paid in travel to Brock. Use it however the fuck you want. If you want to, if you want to use it to pay for a private plane, more power to you. And that makes you happier than you got a happy Brock. Everybody's happy. And I think a lot of guys misread that as, Oh my God, they're paying for Brock's private plane. That's not exactly true. They paid the same thing they would have paid for airfare. And Brock chose to use that money to have his own private plane. It probably ended up costing Brock more money. Uh, certainly didn't cost the company any more money. But that was a, I think they would do that for just about anybody, quite frankly, if they wanted to fly, fly privately. So that's what that was. And, you know, Brock, same thing as Zach Gowan, in my opinion. Brock came out, he achieved success very quickly. 
And I think a lot of guys were resentful of it. They were resentful. This guy's been in the business a couple years and he's getting the push that he is. He deserved the push. He was busting his ass and he was drawing and he, you know, he, he was doing well. To me, it's just jealousy. And I think it's a lot of guys that just look at him and say, uh, you know, fuck him. I've been doing this 10 years and, and I never got that push. You're not Brock Lesnar. Well, yeah. I mean, that's fair, I guess. Let's talk about Canyon. Who better than Canyon? Well, apparently a lot of people, because you guys released him here and you stated that, uh, WB creative had no ideas for using him. Um, Keller would say he was never even officially hired by WWE, but was instead brought in as part of the WCW buyout. He suffered an injury and was never a part of any of the main storylines. He is expected to wind up working for NWA TNA where he has several friends. JR would write on WWE.com. I always thought that Chris Canyon is a very talented in-ring tactician. I always appreciated his being a lifelong fan because I can relate to that. The fact that the guy does have considerable skills in the ring and that fact that he still at this age has many years of in-ring activity ahead of him. It only seemed fair that if we weren't going to do anything with him, not to string him along and to be honest with him and say, we don't have anything and give him the opportunity to wrestle because that's what he loves doing. And that's what we did. Chris was a model locker room talent, always punctual, always professional, great attitude. He'll be a great addition to anyone's locker room or anyone's event. It's just that at this point, there weren't any opportunities with him. So you guys let him go, but Jr. does his best to put him over, uh, on his own website. He says for the past year or so, I've not been hundred percent happy with the direction of my career or my life in general. This release actually comes at a very good time for me. I've not completely decided what I will do at this time, but there are many prospects for me in and out of pro wrestling. And I'm excited about the potential for my future. I know a lot of this sounds like politically correct bull, but the truth is I'm happier and more motivated and excited than I've been in a long time. My past, my past 12 years in this business have been phenomenal and I have provided me and has provided me many great opportunities and memories. I'm sure whatever I decided to do in the future will provide many more great opportunities and memories for me, my family and my friends, and I'll keep everyone updated on my future. And he has a, uh, 90 day, no compete clause in exchange for 90 days pay. This happens again in early 04. As a reminder, he, uh, died in 2010 from an apparent suicide. What do you remember about Chris Canyon in the WWE and why it didn't work out? Well, first of all, Chris was a great guy. Uh, loved the business, had a pretty good head for the business as well. For whatever reason, Vince didn't see anything in him. I don't know if it was because of his lisp, his lack of verbal communication, if you will, did not cut good promos. Um, and Vince just didn't see a lot with him. And, and Chris wanted to be used. And when Chris was healthy, he wanted to work. One of the suggestions, one of the suggestions that I had at the time was to put Chris in OVW as a trainer, because I thought he had, he had skills and was someone that I thought could help train guys and get in the ring with them and still work and be one of those guys to work with the talent every single night in a place like OVW where they could learn. I, I thought they could learn. He wasn't interested in that. He thought that he still had 
some years left in the business and felt that it would be best. That was a mutual deal. That It was like, well, we don't have anything for you. I don't even know if it was presented to him, the OVW thing. I know that we talked about it internally, but the decision came back, you know, we're going to give Chris his release and he's going to move on. And unfortunately, you know, he passed. But to me, Chris was a lifer. He was someone that just lived and breathed the business, just enjoyed it. I thought he was good at it. Not a great promo. Um, I'm, I'll agree with that. However, to me, he was one of those guys that was good to have in the locker room and would have been a, a good influence on young talent because you would be hard-pressed to find anybody in the business that's going to say a bad word about Chris. He, he was just a lot of fun to be around and, and a nice, good guy and had some talent, but he wanted to do more, and we didn't have that more to give him at the time. Another thing to mention here is Ernest, the cat Miller. He was released by WWE brought in specifically based on his reputation as being a high energy personality, but for whatever reason, his work as a color commentator didn't click and they tried to give him a push in ring and he was promoted several weeks with vignettes. But once he debuted the crowd response was maybe not what they were hoping for. And Keller would write, he wasn't exactly known for being dedicated to improving his craft in the ring, which worked against him, especially lately with WWE pushing a more athletic, realistic style over the showy style that Miller is most adept to. JR would write on WWE.com. Ernest was in a situation that I'm not sure he was totally comfortable in, but we all have to adapt. Ernest has great charisma and verbal skills. We made the decision that there's no sense in retaining Ernest when we see that we're not going to use him much as we envisioned and he is able to utilize his skills as much as we had hoped. So his sidekick Lamont, who was working for OVW before Miller got shifted to being a wrestler, he's kept around, but Ernest Miller, he's out of here. And I never really got that. I mean, he had so much charisma in WCW. It felt like somebody that Vince McMahon would have absolutely loved. Uh, Vince did love him. Why, why didn't this work out? Is it just bad timing? I think it was bad timing, and for whatever reason, he didn't connect with the audience. The uh, initial reason to bring Ernest in was a lot of the guys from WCW, when we were looking for on-air talent, color commentators, they all recommended Ernest. So he had been brought in with this high expectation of being this great color commentator. He had never done commentary before. Ernest is an entertaining <laughs> son of a bitch. Um uh, go out and have a few beers with him and listen to him tell stories. God, he's funny and he, he's very entertaining, but it didn't, he had never, to his defense, he had never done fucking color commentary before. And he's thrown in and he's having everybody tell him what to do. So he was confused. And then it was like, oh, well, you got to put him in the ring, let him cut promos. And Vince saw James Brown. He was like, by God, I see James Brown with you. Brought Lamont in and tried the whole thing. And I just don't know if for whatever reason, it it just didn't click with the audience. And all of a sudden, you, you got Lamont in there and in earnest. And, and plus, he was bald. He didn't have, didn't have any hair. 
I'm so glad you mentioned that because it does feel like 66% of men lose their hair by the age 35, but thankfully baldness can be optional. Thanks to forehims.com, a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. Bruce, I know you've got good hair. You've got eh, okay skin, but man, these guys really helped you achieve your sexual wellness. Tell everybody how they got your gimmick going again. Oh, no. What I got to talk about is Willie Alexander, who, look, started going bald. And the beautiful thing about 4hims.com is if you catch it early, then they can actually keep the hair that you have. And Willie Alexander Gray, good friend of mine. I've known him forever, and he's used it. He absolutely loves it because... According to him, he's not losing his hair anymore. And HIMS will connect you with real doctors with medical-grade solutions to treat your hair loss. And these are very well-known generic equivalents to name-brand prescriptions to help you keep your hair. Now, this isn't snake oil pills or gas station counter supplements. You know the ones. Now, all you got to do is go to 4 answer a few quick questions, and the doctor's going to review, and he can prescribe you what you need. Then the products are shipped directly to your door. No more waiting rooms, no more awkward doctor visits. And uh, here's the deal, man. You order right now, our listeners, they're going to get a trial month of hymns for only $5 today, right now, while supplies last. Just go to the website for full details, and this would cost you hundreds if you went to the doctor or pharmacy. All you got to do, go to 4 dot com slash wwe that's for hims f-o-r-h-i-m-s dot com slash w-w-e for hims.com slash w-w-e keep your hair man roll title that i wish the ernest miller would have kept a job would have been cool if he would have done that for me let's talk about another guy who's making headlines at the time Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. Ed Leslie, his real name is, uh, in the news because he caused an anthrax scare in Boston. Wade Keller would write, (laughs) there was white powder at the subway booth where he works full time. Now, when authorities believed it could be anthrax, he volunteered that it was actually his cocaine. Authorities were pleased that he volunteered the info and it didn't cause a mass panic and evacuation. He then agreed to get treatment for substance abuse. There's no word on further legal action being taken against him. Leslie used to be a close friend of Hulk Hogan, but they have grown apart in recent years. Apparently Hogan felt Leslie was dropping his name a little too often around Tampa and cut his ties with him. Hogan was responsible for Leslie being hired by WCW in the mid nineties and headlining against him at Starcade under the name, the butcher. That's right. Ed Leslie, Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake main event of the Starcade. But years later, an anthrax scare in Boston. Uh, whenever we bring up Brutus here on the show, I get a tweet about this, but we've never talked about it. Chat me up anthrax scare. What were you guys thinking when you hear the news? It figures, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's funny when you look back at it now in 2019, I've heard so many different versions of this story that later on it was all bullshit and it never happened and uh, it was all fabricated. So I I don't know. Yes, we heard about it at the time, but I don't think that anybody was surprised 
one way or the other. And, you know, it's something is Bruce the Barber Beefcake going to be at Sarcast? Because maybe you should ask him then and find, let's find out once and for all what the real story is. Are you, are you suggesting a book Brutus for Sarcast? Yeah. You know, he'd come cut him in on your money. Is that the deal? No. Oh, well, you know what? Fuck him. Okay. Fuck Barbara beefcake. God, no. All right. Uh, let's get to February 12th. Smackdown. Kurt is shown laid out backstage and the EMTs are saying they're thankful. He was breathing and had a pulse, which is Thank a hell God. of a line. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's a real thing. It's not on the show, which made me laugh. Oh, they're so thankful. He has a pulse. Uh, suddenly they cut to the ring where a full mariachi band is playing and Brock dances out in a sombrero. And this is one of the best things Brock ever did on TV. And Taz actually got uh, in a line about Cole playing the skin flute, which is kind of fun. So I didn't think Taz did Brock cut a promo, then bearing Eddie, and then grabbed one of those uh, maestro sticks and led the band in a rendition of La Cucaracha and the horn. La Cucaracha, La Cucaracha. The horn player here can't stop laughing. Eddie finally gets in the ring and they all run for the hills. Loud Eddie chants, and Brock tells him he should be happy. These musicians swam a long way to perform for him. And he said the fans love Eddie because he's a fighter. But listen here, addict, he continues. Said Eddie wasn't fighting the odds this time. He's fighting Brock Lesnar. And he cut a promo about how when Eddie was in rehab fighting his demons, Brock was winning NCAA titles. And then he cut another great promo about all the obstacles he'd overcome in his life. And he said at his low point, he lost his job, his wife and his kids, but he earned his way back to the ring. And now he's addicted to the fans and his quest to win the WWE title. Is this one of Eddie Guerrero's best segments ever on television? Yes. You know, it was during a time that we, you, you have to remember a lot of times that the talent the real people, the real people with real problems that folks at home can identify with. And that's what we were trying to do here. Eddie had chronicled in his, well, he hadn't chronicled in his book yet, but Eddie had been very open about the issues that he encountered and he beat them. He won and he was proud of that. So it was something that I think a lot of people could identify with. And when Eddie was out there, you could, you could feel how genuine he was. You, you wanted to reach through the television and help him. You, you want to say, come on, Eddie, you can do it. I'm here for you. That was the reaction that we were looking for. And in my opinion, that was the reaction that we got because he, it was true. And you could, you could feel it. It, it. You didn't have to think about it, man. It was right there. You knew somebody in your life that had battled those same demons. And you just, you felt for Eddie Guerrero and you wanted him to succeed so bad. And Brock Lesnar was the epitome of bully. And people wanted him to get his comeuppance and felt this was the guy to humble Brock Lesnar. I mean, it really is the best. I mean, the best Eddie Guerrero segment on TV up to this point for me. 
it, it was it was just it, it was so good because it was real. And and we'll talk about the match in a little bit. But going back and revisiting so much of this, there were so many instances where I had goosebumps because well, first of all, Andy and I were close, but it was it was real. It, it, it was 100 percent real, and you could feel it as an audience member. Let's get to the pay-per-view. A fun show, one I haven't watched in a long time until this week. But uh man, no way out of four. If you haven't seen it, go fire it up. This was a legit sellout. Eleven thousand fans here, grossed over four hundred and fifty thousand dollars at the gate, did around three hundred and fifty thousand buys on pay-per-view, and it took hours to get everyone in because there's only one entrance. Uh, I guess in a sense, man, this cow palace uh Really sucked, huh? It's a fucking old barn. <laughs> I mean, it's a gigantic fucking barn. You know, but it was a great place. It was a, it was a interesting atmosphere. But yes, one fucking entrance at the very end of the building. And they weren't, I don't think they were really prepared. Plus, we were a little late opening doors. Now, Wade Keller would write that No Way Out helped the company earn $43.7 million in revenue from pay-per-view versus the 31.8 the prior year, and this would be confirmed in the quarterly financial report. So uh, a huge success, and a lot of it is based on you know the excitement for WrestleMania, but also one heck of a card, especially the main event and the suggestion that there would be some Goldberg Lesnar interaction, which people are really hot for, which if you've seen WrestleMania 20, I don't know. It's weird to, to see where it is here and then where it would be, you know, just a month or so later. Let's start with the matches. Rikishi and Scotty too hottie beat the Bashams and Shaniqua when Rikishi pinned Shaniqua in seven minutes and 38 seconds to retain the tag titles. Uh, of course there is uh, a stink face here teased. Eventually, uh, Rikishi comes back with a Samoan drop, does a sit down splash for the three count. Wade gave it one star. What'd you think of the match a, and what'd you think of, uh, a man wrestling a woman, which has certainly been talked about on WWE programming lately. Uh, same thing I felt about China. I didn't like it. And you know, it was thankfully sparing, but I still, I, I didn't care for it. The match was okay. I mean, it was decent. There was nothing wrong with it. There was nothing really good about it, nothing really bad about it. It, it was a match. and But at the same time, I watched all those guys go, okay. Uh, can't, can't complain. But uh, I got to go back, though. I got to talk about the open of the show. We had, you know, Sable and, and Tori go out first, and they were on the cover of Playboy, blah, blah, blah. But the pre-packaged open in my notes, I absolutely got goosebumps for the build of Eddie Guerrero. Because you went back, we talked about those demons, and, and watching the crowd reactions in that pre-packaged open, goosebumps all over. I'm getting goosebumps talking about it right now. Um telling that story and it was in in the open it was a one match you know it was a one match story um that i thought was masterfully done and, and really got over and then we get into the first match and yeah it wasn't wasn't anything special but it wasn't bad well, let's get to the next match here jamie noble beat nidia here in four minutes and 25 seconds 
The storyline here is rather interesting. Tell everybody the backstory of how we got here. Well, obviously Jamie and Nydia were a couple. Jamie won a lot of money and they got everything in, in the package. Again, one of my favorite, favorite lines is as Jamie is showing all the things that his money has got. Well, look at this, baby. Here we got a big old limo. I got you a double wide and check this out. And he turns the faucet on and goes, look at that. Look at that. Running water. Running water. And I about fell over and, and probably missed the rest of it because I just love that line so much. But along the way, Nydia got blinded uh, by the mysterious black mist. Now, everyone knows, everyone knows the black mist is the worst. Okay, the green mist will uh, debilitate you, if that's even a word, long enough for someone to score a victory. The red mist will burn, and that will paralyze you for a matter of seconds. But the black mist, well, that shit will blind you and do some nasty shit. And uh, Nydia had got hit with the black mist, and she was blinded for a while, and then she regained her sight unbeknownst to Jamie. So Nydia got to see all the things that Jamie was doing. And, and, uh, Jamie had kind of been mistreating her along the way. So now they're going to have a match where Jamie has to experience exactly what Nydia went through. He had to be blindfolded in this match and fuck. I absolutely loved it. Uh, <laughs> here's one okay. man versus woman. But it was a ha-ha, it was a gimmick match. And you watch this and you'll understand why Jamie Noble is regarded as is one of the top guys right now laying out matches. He made it make sense. It was very entertaining and it made sense and you believed it. So um I thought it was great. What did how many eight how many stars or Fernum Snabitzes did uh Shabotsky get? He says it was about the right length and a fun comedy match. One star. He did say that, uh, Taz was complaining that a world-class athlete like noble deserved better. You know, it is, it is a fun, it is fun for what it is a blindfold match. I don't know. I guess maybe I'm just nostalgic about the old Jake and Rick Martel match because as, when I was a kid, I thought that was the greatest thing ever and thought it was cool. You guys dusted it off here. Uh, it was excellent, especially the fact that only Jamie was blindfolded, which made it even more, yeah. <laughs> even more fun. And, and him doing the spot in the corner where he's going in and he's almost there. And it looks like he's just about ready to grab her tits. And they realize, oh, no, she's not there. Um, it, it just there were so many clever spots like that. And when Nydia finally got caught, it was logical. And it, it was it was good, fun stuff. Let's talk a little bit about, um, the next match because, well, I guess we should first talk about Josh interviews, Josh Matthews interviewing Kurt angle about his chair shots on both uh, big show and Cena on SmackDown and angle said one of them must've attacked him. Cena walks in and said he'd attack angle to his face. And then he slapped him and they have a brief pull apart brawl. There's a lot of talent here. John Cena, what we know he's going to become big show and Kurt angle. This is going to be a fun match. Let's talk about the next one though. Shelton Benjamin and Charlie Haas would beat the APA in seven minutes and 20 seconds. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this match. I don't know why. I just thought the storytelling here with, um, Bradshaw having a hurt arm 
and yeah. then, and then throwing the clothesline from hell, but he's hurt afterwards and then gets blindsided by uh, Benjamin with a sidekick. And that is what leads to the finish. Really a fun match. I think Benjamin and Haas are probably one of the more underrated tag teams in the history of the company. And they're out here with two big old bulls and it made for a damn entertaining match. Wade only gave it a star and a half, but it was, uh, it was seven minutes and 20 seconds. And I thought it was a really fun seven minutes and 20 seconds. It, it was. And it will, and it told a story. It told a really good story with APA. And again, I know where the hell we were going and I know what we were trying to do. I don't know that it, it was told as clearly as I probably would have liked it to, but we were suddenly getting to the split with the APA in this match, just eat with the finish and, and Bradshaw with the clothesline and Bradshaw dropping the fall. It was the little, just little drops. And we weren't even sure at this point what we were going to do with each guy. We knew we were going to split them up after WrestleMania. Um, but good God, I, I, I agree with you. I thought it was a, a fun, <laughs> good match. Simple story, hurt arm world's greatest tag team, took advantage of it and, and beat the, the veterans. Good shit. It was good shit. I mean, if you haven't watched it in a while, go back and watch it now. Next up, I guess I should tell you as a reminder, the on raw, Steve Austin had a ticket for the show and he gives it to Goldberg and he tells Goldberg not to do anything he wouldn't do. So this is the point in the show where Goldberg walks out to his front row seat. Paul Heyman comes out and asks him. Who in the hell do you think you are? He said, if Goldberg interfered or even just stood up, he'd have security eject him. Brock Lesnar comes out, calls Goldberg into the ring and Goldberg took him up on it. Brock gives him a jackhammer. Heyman's shouting for help, which is a hilarious scene to see him yelling over the house. Mike security comes out, handcuffs Goldberg and takes him away. And when Heyman and Brock begin to regain their composure, Hardcore Holly comes out, which caused a panic attack by Brock Lesnar. Fun little deal here. I really enjoyed the segment and fucking a were the fans into it. God damn. They want to, they wanted Goldberg so bad. And they, during the whole thing, they were different parts of the show where they would do the Goldberg chant. So that part of the story was told and they were ready for it. You know, you enjoyed Heyman screaming for security in real life. I'm livid. I'm going fucking nuts because I wanted security there a lot quicker. I wanted, I wanted bing bang the, the fucking whatever the hell Goldberg's finish is. And I wanted security in the ring because that's what Heyman would have done. No, no, Heyman, I, I get it. That makes sense to me, but I'm just saying him screaming for it was still funny. Yeah, no, it was. And it was very entertaining. I, I agree with all that. I'm just saying from, from my vantage point, I'm going, and Vince is like, hold on, hold on. I'm like, ah, I want him there. And, um, but again, I guess it worked out. You don't know. And you didn't know what it was supposed to be and you enjoyed it. So it was okay. That's a win. But for me, I would have, I wanted that damn security there a whole hell of a lot quicker. No doubt. And hardcore Holly is out next. As we said, he's going to beat Rhino in nine minutes and 50 seconds. Wade would say the first two and the last two minutes were good, but the middle dragged and they lost the crowd. Holly wins with the Alabama slam. He gives it a star in three quarters, which I think it's crazy to rate that higher than that tag match. But you know, ratings are just opinions, man. I get it. 
it's, it's a really tough spot to be right here after such a high profile segment with Goldberg and Lesnar, anybody who's coming after that, you've got like an adrenaline dump for the fans here. Do you know it? Yes. And that's the reason that match was put there. Um, it was what it was. It, it was, it, I hate to call it a popcorn match, but that was, that was, you, you do the big angle for the main event with Brock and Goldberg. Now I'm going to bring them down a little bit. And from this point forward, um, I'll put the last three matches against anything with anybody, anytime. All right. Next up, probably your second favorite match on the card. Chavo Guerrero jr. Working with Ray Mysterio. Chavo's going to get the win to capture the cruiserweight title. 17 minutes and 11 seconds. They go three and a quarter stars. Wade would say good, but lack the intensity of a great match. The storyline for this though is really, really good. I enjoyed it. I know you had to love it. Tell us the backstory and then, uh, who is in each man's corner here? Well, you got Chavo classic Chavo senior coming out with his son, which in any combination, I love, I, they, they thoroughly entertain me and Jorge Paez. Now. I had forgotten about Jorge until I watched this. And as I'm watching everything for the buildup, I'm thinking that the, the Taz is saying Porky Paez. It was actually Jorge, but um, two-time world champion, great boxer, but uh, a name in the San Francisco area. So he was a friend, and we used him to come out and kind of balance the match out in the beginning. The, to me... I thought the match was fucking awesome. Two of the greatest with, with Ray and Chavito. And when a lot of people compare the, the cruiserweights of the WCW and the light heavyweights and what have you of WWE, to me, this is a perfect example of the difference. Whereas the cruiserweights and WCW had been instructed I don't care what you do. Go on out and give me a car crash. I want a train wreck. I want the spots. I want the flip fly and flying. I want a lot of shit so that people can't turn away. The more spectacular, the better. While there was an element of that that we liked, these guys took their time and they sold what they did. They did the big spots, but they slowed down and they sold them. So this was a part of, we talked in the very beginning, Vince trying to get guys to slow down, do less, make it mean more. My opinion, this was a perfect example of that great psychology in the match and just a beautiful story all the way through getting rid of Piaz in the middle by, uh, punching Chavo senior. And that was enough for Chavo senior to help fucking Chavito fuck Ray and win the title. And the whole story going into it is Chavo's a winner. Chavo's a champion, something that Eddie will never be because Eddie's an addict and Eddie's a fucking loser. Um, I, I, I was reliving it. I, I really was. And this was one of my, that I go back and as we've said so many times, this was one of all, I always wanted to revisit and talk about because it was a special night and it was one where, a lot of shit came together and you saw the, the emergence of so many great stars. And we had a hell of a roster at this time. Oh, no doubt. I mean, this is, you know, we've talked about it before, but I think that 
oh two, oh three, oh four roster, one of the absolute best ever. Um any any other fun memories about Chavo Senior you can share with us? I don't know when we'll talk about him again. <laughs> A lot, man. It's most of them I can't I don't think I could ever tell. But Chavo Senior was somebody that was just so special uh, to us. My brother Tom had worked in California for the Guerrero's dad for Gory and was a, became a member of their family. When Chavo came to Texas and worked in San Antonio for many years and would come through Houston, we, we were just a big family. And I looked at uh, Chavo senior as a brother, uh, a great friend for just throughout so many ups and downs in our lives that when you know, and, and Eddie and I were close and, and I, I got to know Chavito in the, the same thing, the same kind of relationship. So the Guerreros have a very, very special place in my heart. Hector, uh, only one I'm not real close with only because I never spent a lot of time with him is Mondo. Um, but Mondo and, and my brother Tom are, are very close. So I, you're talking about family and Chavo senior was one of the first light heavyweights to break through and make it in that heavyweight world. So they could bring Chavo in and he was smaller than guys, but he could work with anybody and make it believable. And that's what was special about him. Next up, we've got Kurt angle working with John Cena and the big show It's a three-way match where uh, the winner earns a title shot at WrestleMania 20. Of course, you know, by now Kurt angle gets the win. Keller would say really good three-way match with good near falls and near submissions kept short. So it didn't drag. And the finishing sequence was top notch ending when angle angle put Cena in a grapevine after Cena's leg was battered during the match three and a half stars. So I guess first I should ask why was it decided or when was it decided that Kurt would be the one to win the match and get a title shot at WrestleMania 20. Probably right around WrestleMania. I mean, not WrestleMania, right around Royal Rumble because we're talking about, okay, we're going to do this. We're getting it off of Brock. We're moving it to Eddie. What's Eddie's first big victory? Who is going to be that guy that really anoints Eddie, takes him to that next level? To me, there, there was no one else other than Kurt. Kurt made sense. It was logical. Tremendous chemistry. So... It, it, it's it's um, Eddie who eliminates Kurt in that Royal Rumble match on SmackDown. There's unfinished business between the two of them. I, to me, it was just logical. I thought it was good logical storytelling. So we we knew what the hell we were doing at the Rumble, and we had to rush it pretty quick, getting to no way out. And then, man, you had your guy right here. What did you think of the match? You haven't seen it for a long time. Your first time watching it in 15 years. It's weird to see Cena in 04, knowing what Cena's going to become. Is it not? I love, I love Cena's entrance in his rap, if you will, on both guys. It was, you know, here where you're seeing this guy's going to be it. He, he was showing all, all the signs there as well. And to be able to hang with Kurt the way that he did. Big show was a fucking giant. Uh, it was excellent. It was, it was really good shit. And this was an old timey, an old timey card. In my opinion, the way that we built the, the, when I say the last three matches, you got great, greater 
you know, excellent, greatest, whatever it wants for the finish of the night. And they played their part to perfection. Yeah, it was a fun match, but it all pales in comparison to what's next, man. Eddie Guerrero beats Brock Lesnar in 29 minutes and 55 seconds to capture the WWE heavyweight championship. Of course, Brock dominated early and then Guerrero made the big comeback. Lots of, uh, Matt holds several minutes in with a few hot moves mixed in, including a horrific clothesline by Brock that they show in slow-mo and, uh, Guerrero turned a throat grab by Brock into a, uh, UFC style reversal into a knee bar and then an STF pretty fun stuff about halfway through the match. And then some more, you know, Matt work, uh, Brock finds himself bleeding from the nose and then Guerrero makes the big comeback with about five minutes left in the match. And he does those three, uh, vertical suplexes where he never lets go, uh, a staple classic Eddie Guerrero, as Michael Cole would say, the ref goes down during a, an F five attempt from Brock. Brock gets the title belt uh, clear. He's going to attack uh, Eddie with it, but then Goldberg runs out and spears Brock and then leaves two minutes later, Brock comes back with another F five attempt, but this time Eddie escapes and DDT's Brock and hits a frog splash for the count. Excellent match. Wade Keller would say four and a half stars. He loved it. I watched it for the first time in a long time. An amazing match start to finish. Talk about what this was like watching it backstage because you're good friends with Eddie, you know, his story and knowing the story makes the match all that much better. Does it not? Definitely. Uh, I cried uh, and watching the match again, all these years later, I'm sitting at my computer, just watching it. Like it was the first time all over again, because I hadn't seen it in a long time and just being riveted. Brock Lesnar, you put Brock Lesnar with the small Brock can work with pretty much anybody, but in comparison, you put Brock with a smaller guy. He shines. Fuck. He, he, I, I forgot how fucking good that he was then. And this was an example, you know, yes, a lot of it was Eddie, but watching this match and seeing how Brock sold, and the logic used in going to Brock's injured knee and, and going for the knee early on and Brock just dominating and bullying Eddie to the point that when Eddie finally gets, you know, gets him down with the knee and works on it, you everything about it, everything that they did in this match was believable. So, no matter who you were watching this match, you couldn't poke holes in, in any of it. And people, you know, they, people like to knock Brock and what have you for shit. But that son of a bitch, in my opinion, is, is the best out there right now. And at this time, you go back and look at how young he was in the business and to be able to hang the way that he hung with Eddie in this match. Eddie made Brock and Eddie made the championship and made it mean something when he won it because he beat somebody even using, and I was dead set. I hated it. I knew we had to do it, but I hated using Goldberg in the finish, hated it, but it was a necessity. We, we had to do that to get to WrestleMania. I love the way that they came up with out of the Goldberg stuff. When you think, okay, that's it. Eddie's going for the cover. He covers him one, two, 
Brock kicked out. You didn't see it coming. And then Brock goes up and then they went into another finishing sequence. And you, you think that another uh, false finish is coming and it's one, two, three. And that fucking place exploded. They wanted that so bad. And I don't think that a lot of people, I think the majority of the audience, they were waiting for this not to happen. And when it came to reality and their guy had just defeated, he just slayed the dragon, classic David versus Goliath. And Eddie slayed the fucking dragon. You, you just felt it. And he immediately went out into the audience and jumped into the people, went to his mother and hugged his mother and Mondo. Um, I, we were crying backstage. It, it just, um, it was one of those special moments of something when you you have an idea and it, it's executed. And I would dare say it was executed better than I even imagined. So it, it was a very proud moment for me. And it was something to go back. And, and it's a proud moment for the business to be able to like you said, we had three weeks to get to the story of that match. And they made it something that all these years later, people are still talking about going, holy fuck, that was amazing shit. And it was. After the match, he uh, runs and finds his mom, gives her a big hug. Uh, such an emotional scene to watch. I mean, Eddie's not only a legend, he's one of the great success stories in the history of wrestling. He'd overcome all the odds based on size or circumstance or poor life choices and overcame it all. The horrible car wreck, I mean, being released from the company in November of 01, worked his way through the Indies, cleaned his life back up, came back in. I mean, it's like a movie and it influenced so many people. I mean, Bailey, who's on the main roster now for WWE, says she was in the building that night as a fan and it was magical. And of course, Sasha Banks is pretty public about being an Eddie Guerrero fan and how much it influenced her life. And it's matches like this that made it happen. Um, Eddie told his friends after he won the title that he dropped to his knees, looked to the sky and thanked God and his late father for making it possible. And he was thrilled that his mother and two brothers were in attendance. And he told WWE.com after his title win that a dream of his had just come true. Quote, it's unbelievable. I can't describe how I feel. It's my dream come true more than my dream. Actually, I know all things are possible now, even though this was a dream of mine. Sometimes I wondered if it was too far fetched. You want to grab all your dreams with all your heart, but sometimes they seem so far away. You can't. And I think I sold myself short in the past and I hope my victory sends a message to everyone out there. I really hope it does. Who would ever expect a Chicano 5'9", 220 pounds to win the WWE championship? I'm just thankful. And there are a lot of people behind it. I can't take all the credit. Talk, tell me, you know, the scene when he walks through the curtains, because there's so many people who know the story and this had to be a, a major moment, not just for Eddie, but for his, his family, his friends and his colleagues who respected him. It was a standing ovation and, you know, there were hugs and tears all around the, 
you know, Vince was, Vince was crying. <laughs> Vince was very emotional because, and then he said, Bailey said it was magical. It, it, it was, it was magical. It's a beautiful description of it. Everyone believed there was a happy ending. Um, Brock came back and was one of the best matches he ever had in his life was so thankful and everybody every once in a while the good guy wins that's what happened on on that night and I'll never forget the there's a big ramp in the back of the cow palace there must have been 5000 people that did not leave that stayed on that ramp outside to see Eddie leave that night. They just, they just stayed there. It was, it was incredible. I remember saying, hang on, you know, don't, don't go. I want, I want to capture this. And we had went and got the camera crew and I said, follow him, just everything he does and let's get him out of here. But I want, I want all this shit documented. Let's go see all these people. They're not leaving. They weren't going to leave until they saw their hero come out and Eddie soaked it all up, um, you know, for Chavo senior Chavo classic. He, he was in tears seeing his little brother do that. It, it was a family moment. I think that all of them were in retrospect thinking what Gory would think and how proud the old man would be. And, his mom came back and, and we all hugged and, and it was, it was just truly a magical moment. You, you felt good because to me and a lot of people, and this, this was my battle with Eddie. People looked at him as the Mexican talent. He's our Mexican star. I would get so fucking angry because it would be, he's not the fucking Mexican star. He's a star. He's the star. Don't label him. The Hispanic audience is going to come out for him, not just the Mexicans. It's don't fucking pigeonhole him. Look at how many people, white, yellow, black, brown, green, they love him. They don't give a fuck what his nationality is. Let him be him. And he appealed to everyone. It goes back to in the Mid-South. I've told this story before of Bill Watts when Junkyard Dog left. Uh, Bill Watts was just dead. I've got to have a black baby face. And he just brought guys in based on the color of their skin to fill JYD's spot. You had Hacksaw Jim Duggan who was already there that was over. But... Uh, you say, Bill, you don't need a black superstar. You just need a superstar. You just need a baby face. So that that would, would get me sometimes in the business because Eddie, people would want to pigeonhole him and go, don't let him, let him be Eddie. Don't just let him be Eddie. And Eddie was one of those guys that appealed to everyone. Everyone in the audience could identify with him. Everyone in the audience loved him. And that was the uniqueness. That was what was so special about him. And he, he went above and beyond and is one of the, one of the most special talents I've 
ever had the pleasure to work with. Um, we fought, (laughs) I mean, we butted heads a lot. Uh, we laughed, we cried everything, but that talent that he had to be able to connect with an audience, it's really special because they're few and far between. Eddie wrote in his book about this night. Uh, but before I tell you what Eddie wrote, I want to share something that Chris shared. He talked about how Eddie came in with the radicals, you know, Benoit, Saturn, Dean, and he wrote right from the start. I vividly remember this two weeks after they got there. I heard from a very high source. Vince says, Eddie's the guy. And I was like, really? Eddie's the guy. He's the one out of all the other guys. Perry's all big. And Benoit was Benoit and Dean was Dean. Vince said Eddie's the guy because he checked off all the boxes. He didn't have the size, but he worked like he was a giant and he thought he was a giant. He could do anything. As all of us know, he had the character and charisma. Lo and behold, Vince is a genius and Vince knew what he wanted. And Vince made him one of the biggest stars in the company. And that was right off the bat. He saw that, which I always thought, wow, right away. You could see Eddie's character and charisma coming through. What do you think? Um, what do you think Vince and Eddie's relationship was like before this pay-per-view and did it change after? It was a lot stronger after, but it, it was the, when Eddie came back the last time and, and had really cleaned up his act, Vince saw the determination. We, we put him in the storyline with China, which a lot of people thought was the death knell. It, it'll, you know, that's going to kill him. Eddie made it work. Eddie went above and beyond um, everything that he was given. He made work. He fought. He was humble, but he fought. So the relationship with Vince, he wasn't afraid to speak his mind, which Vince loves. So they grew, they grew closer and closer, but they really got close after this because Vince saw in Eddie this fire burning that he wanted to do anything and everything to get the story over. When you you go back and you look at the run with him and JBL, Eddie Guerrero made JBL. He made him. When everybody was shitting all over it, Eddie Guerrero made John Layfield, made JBL, John Bradshaw Layfield. He made that character. And it was Eddie who we talked about, well, what do we do with the title? He's, oh, my God, put the title on that motherfucker. He's a heat-seeking missile. And that's unselfish. Eddie wasn't one of those guys that I got to be the champion. So he was always business first and and looking after the story. And whatever you gave him, he was going to make work. Eddie wrote in his book that this was the biggest win of his entire career, the biggest match, most important match of his entire career. He said it was an amazing night, but what was even more amazing is the two and a half years prior, he wasn't even working for the company because he had been sent to rehab quote. If someone had told me that I was going to be the standard bearer for the world wrestling entertainment, the biggest and best wrestling company on the planet, I would have never believed it. In fact, I didn't even believe it when WWE CEO Vince McMahon first told me that he was planning on awarding me the belt. Nobody, not even myself had ever seen me as a main eventer, as a guy who could be trusted to represent the best a wrestling promotion had to offer. 
It was Vince, God bless him, who really believed in me. And his faith in me gave me the confidence to go out and give Brock Lesnar the match of my life. For me, winning the most prestigious title in our sport was the fulfillment of a dream. I'm not talking about a dream that I had when I first started in the business. This was a dream from ever since I can remember when I was a little boy watching my father, the legendary Gory Guerrero wrestle, see how proud my brothers Chavo, Mando, and Hector were when they wore the championship belts. Lord knows it hadn't been easy. The wrestling business is like nothing else. It takes a very strong personality to live the life of a professional wrestler. It's not so much what goes on inside the ring. It's everything that goes on outside of it as well. The 20 minutes or more we spend inside the ring. That's the fun part. It's the rest of our lives. That's the real battle, the ruthless backstage politics, the constant traveling, the endless mental and physical aches and pains. My friend Dean Malenko says it all the time. This business isn't for everybody. But I'll tell you this, Bruce, I'm glad that this business was for Eddie Guerrero. He brought us so many great memories. We're certainly going to do a lot more Eddie Guerrero content in the future, but what a night this was no way out of four, the biggest, most important match of Eddie's career. Yeah, it was. And it was, uh, a big night for WWE because it opened the door for a lot of guys that may have been a little bit smaller in stature, but big in talent to allow them to display their wares and be recognized. And I think a lot of guys, you can thank Shawn Michaels and Eddie Guerrero for that, to be able to get to that point and live it in people for people to truly believe. And I I thank Eddie for that. Well, it was a great night. If you haven't already, you need to go back and watch it. Bruce, you've been a part of a lot of big emotional moments in wrestling. Where does this one rank? Top five? Oh, God, yes, top five. I mean, probably top one or two. It, it was It was just special, and it, it was, like I said, it was nice that the, the good guy, <laughs> a good guy, uh, Eddie Guerrero won in real life and, and he won in the profession that, that he chose to live. And it, and it was more than a profession. It was his life. And, and at that point he won. If you haven't already, we've said it a lot, go back and watch this match. What a match, what a story. And, um, I'm looking forward to it. I, I guess we should go ahead and tell everybody that, uh, we've had a poll up for a little while now. And it looks like we've got a winner for what we're going to be covering next week. Bruce, you saw all the topics, uh, Carrie Von Eric, the Texas tornado was up there for the first time in a long time, maybe ever. And he was up there against in your house, six rage in a cage, which was Bret Hart versus diesel in the old big blue cage where the undertaker comes up from the underneath the ring, which was probably one of the first times that ever happened. We also had in your house, final four. From February of 97, right after Sean lost his smile as we marched towards WrestleMania 13. But our winner, uh, just by the hair on its chinny chin chin, uh, it edged out Carrie Von Erich. That got like 38%, I think. The Undertaker, 2004, 2006. What might we be talking about next week when we cover Undertaker, 2004, 2006? The battle of the dead man, the reemergence of the dead man. It was such a battle to get him 
to recreate that character and go back from the American badass to old school dead man and the undertaker that I think everybody knew and loved. So we'll, we'll go down that road and some of the battles that we had. I mean, after all, Conrad, that, that was just such a shitty poll. Well, I saw that comment on there and I was like, what, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, I couldn't believe somebody thought it was a, uh, why such weak topics? It's like, dude, yeah, we've weak got, was the word. We've yeah. Got Undertaker. We've got Kerry Von Erich. We've got a pay-per-view from 96 and one from 95, maybe 95, whatever. Yeah. We've got two big pay-per-views or important ones based on the story of WWE. It's just, I don't know how anybody thought that was a weak poll. And I really tell you, I thought Texas tornado was going to pull it out. I really did think Kerry Von Erich was going to win. Well, in the beginning, he was in the beginning. He was ahead. When the bolt, when the poll first went up, Kerry was ahead by a couple of points and then undertaker just, just pulled ahead and didn't look back. But, um, Hey, Kerry will be on a poll again. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we're looking forward to it. Stay tuned. We've got more poll topics coming your way. Uh, we're not going to do a Q and a this week for no way out. Oh, four, but we have tons of questions. I'm going to have Bruce hop on Patreon and take your questions there because there are hundreds of questions dropped on our social media this week. And, uh, we're just going to do that one on Patreon. If you haven't already, you should check that out. It's patreon.com forward slash something to wrestle. Hey Conrad. Yeah. You don't even know this because it, it just came in, uh, via tech, via text. If you, you, Conrad, Connie, uh, Brucey, Brucey may have a very special interview about the olden days in the Mid-South. I'm not going to give it away, but if you're a Patreon member, Sassafras, you may get to hear old Brucey and and a friend of his back in the Mid-South days kind of reminisce and and talk about old times in the Mid-South. So that's happening over on Patreon as well. And there's rumor and innuendo that uh, me, you, and JR might be doing something WrestleMania weekend too. So stay tuned for that. Be some more news coming your way on that. Maybe uh, follow us on social media. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. Our show, of course, is at Pritchard show, but on Patreon, not only will you get these questions from no way out, but Bruce does a Q and a once a week. It looks like he's maybe got an interview lined up, but no spoilers. Not surprise. Uh, check it out. Patreon.com forward slash something to wrestle. Uh, I think it's like nine bucks gets you in the door. So pretty good deals over there and pretty good deals with our friends over at ageless male max, because they've got a patent pending formula with an ingredient that helps you boost your total testosterone which is going to help you promote greater increases in muscle size and twice the reduction in body fat percentage than just exercise alone. Plus an amazing 64% increase in nitric oxide, which can be handy in the gym or in the bedroom. Try your first 30 day bottle for free. Just pay the shipping and handling. When you text the word Ram to 797979, that's R A M to 797979 message and data rates. My apply. Until next week, he's Bruce Pritchard. I'm Conrad Thompson, and we are out of time. This is where you do that thing. Shaka Khan. Hey, everybody. This is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day. Plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.